With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Oborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to your Global News Hour. On today's show, India unveils the largest building in the world. Under Biden faces scrutiny from mainstream media at long last, with multiple new studies revealing the magnitude of damage caused by Pfizer and other supposed cures, and top-secret Russiagate files have gone missing. This is Compass with Jason Olborn. But first today, at least 90 people have been killed and more than 100 injured in the latest Israeli attacks on the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza. The Enclave's health ministry said on Sunday that strikes hit a residential block belonging to the Al-Bash and Alban families in the town of Jabalia. Palestinian news agency Wafa has reported women and children were among the dead with dozens still missing, Wafa said in its report. The first responders and locals were searching for the wounded and more bodies were believed to be under the rubble. Many of those injured, including children, were taken to nearby medical centres, which are already overwhelmed with patients. The son of Dawood Shabab, the spokesman for the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group, was among the dead, an official from the group told the Reuters news agency. We believe the number of dead people under the rubble is huge, but there is no way to remove the rubble and recover them because of the intensity of Israeli fire, he said by telephone. Medics in central Gaza's Dayir el-Bala said at least 12 Palestinians were killed and dozens more wounded, while in Rafa in the south, an Israeli air attack on a house left at least four people dead. Meanwhile, Israel has also ramped up its artillery shelling in the southern Gaza, hitting the cities of Khan Yunus and Rafa, where the majority of displaced Palestinians are sheltering. The stepping up of bombardments in the south has worsened the humanitarian situation, with starving people scrambling for food and water, grabbing them from aid trucks in desperation. Israel on Sunday said it will reopen the Karim Abu Salem crossing in the east, but it is unclear whether supplies have crossed through there yet. The United Nations estimates about 1.9 million people, about 80% of Gaza's population, have been displaced by the war. I would not be surprised if the people started dying of hunger or a combination of hunger, disease, weak immunity, said Philippe Lazzarini, the head of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, or UNWA. Meanwhile, appearing on NBC News, Senator Lindsey Graham says that in order to normalise relations with Saudi Arabia, Israel will have to accept a two-state solution whilst praising efforts by the Biden administration. To my friends in Israel, you do whatever you think is best for the state of Israel, but I can tell you, Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries cannot normalise with Israel if they've seen if they're having been seen as throwing the Palestinians under the bus. We have two choices, continue the death spiral or use October 7th as a catalyst for change. I think this, the Arabs are going to demand some form of two-state solution to recognize Israel. I think Israel's going to demand security buffers different than before, and they need to make those demands. I don't know how this ends, but I'll tell you this. If we don't get this right this time, we're talking about another generation of just tit-for-tat death. So if we've got Republicans agreeing with Democrats over the behaviour of Israel and how it's meant to be played out, is this what's being seen around the world now? Instead, meanwhile, journalist Shihab Ritanzi was scathing in his criticising of both Graham and the Biden administration, whom he says are backtracking now as the US now realises it is caught in a public relations nightmare. 
And it's quite instructive to look at how Graham got to this departure, this tough love, saying, oh, look, you know, we, we, we support you, but this may not be popular, but, you know, you have to accept a two-state solution. Because actually that interaction on that program began with the question of, is Israel doing enough to limit civilian deaths, though, Sen Senator? And you could see, I was watching Graham kind of gulped, because clearly there is no justification for what's going on in Gaza. And he said, I would hope they could do more. But then he did what everyone in the Biden administration is doing, too. He immediately then says, but let's talk about the day after, this pivot to the future, the day after. Don't talk about today. Because, of course, everything that's being done today is being done with American support, American green light, American weapons. So let's talk about the future. And that's where then there's a, that element of criticism, partly because Netanyahu himself has completely destroyed the narrative edifice of the American foreign policy establishment here by saying, no, we never were interested in giving the Palestinians a two-state solution. We were never going to do that. I never wanted to do that. And, of course, this is what the Palestinians have been saying for ages. This is what impartial observers have been saying for ages. The, the narrative, oh, Clinton at Camp David, you know, Arafat walked away, blah, blah, blah. It was all complete nonsense. And it's all being admitted now. So, so they're scrambling. That foreign policy establishment is, is scrambling. So they're saying, look, you see, we are being critical about Israel. Here. We're saying, look, you should at least get a two-state solution sometime in the future. This doesn't mean that they're not going to continue to unconditionally support Israel. But in the same way that Biden last week was saying, look, this is about PR. It's about public opinion. And if you, are you see this too intransigent, you're going to lose public opinion. That's the main issue for senators like Lindsey Graham and for President like Biden. A Vatican court has sentenced Cardinal Giovanni Angelo Becciu to five years and six months behind bars for his role in a scheme involving property in London that is believed to have cost the Holy See millions of dollars. Becciu became the first cardinal to be tried and sent to prison by a Vatican court. Aside from the 75-year-old, nine other defendants stood trial, with sentences handed down on Saturday, totaling 37 years. According to Vatican News, Becciu, who occupied the position of substituto or substitute in the Holy See's Secretariat of State, was found guilty of three counts of embezzlement. He has been barred from ever holding public office and must pay a fine of €8,000. The case, which has launched back in July of 2021 and spanned some 856 separate hearings, revolves around the Vatican's purchase of a vast property in southwest London's Chelsea neighbourhood, for which the Holy See shelled out approximately $400 million over several years. However, in the end, it had to sell the asset, losing $150 million. Between June 2013 and February 2014, Cardinal Betsiu gave the green light to the deal with hedge fund Athena Capital Global Opportunities Fund acting as an intermediary. The latter entity, headed by Raphael Mincione, was characterised as a highly speculative venture, prosecutors insisted. According to investigators, funds received for charitable purposes ended up being invested in extremely high-risk financial activity and therefore toward a goal completely incompatible with that of the original donors. The value of the London property is believed to have been grossly overestimated in the documents presented to the Secretariat of State. The whole affair attracted the 
attention of the Vatican's financial watchdogs in 2019, with Pope Francis describing it as a scandal. At the time, the Cardinal has consistently denied all charges against him, with his lawyer stating on Saturday that he would appeal the verdict. Mincione also insisted on his innocence, adding that the claim of an inflated price was never substantiated. In a separate episode, the Cardinal paid some 570,000 euro out of the Vatican's coffers to a security consultant for fictitious services. The money was meant to go toward the liberation of a religious sister, a victim of kidnapping in Africa, but was instead apparently spent on fashion clothing items and luxury hotels. The cleric was also found guilty of embezzling an additional 125,000 euro by transferring Vatican funds to a cooperative run by Antonio Becciu, ostensibly for charitable purposes. And reports emerging from the Pentagon suggest that the United States military is entering the year of 2024 with its smallest size and lowest qualification levels in nearly eight decades. This development raises significant concerns about national security and military readiness in an era of evolving global threats. According to the Daily Mail, the total number of active duty personnel has dropped to levels not seen since the 1940s, a period before the US entered World War II. The emerging challenges in military recruitment are becoming increasingly evident, as seen in this year's significant shortfall of 41,000 personnel. This gap highlights the widening disconnect between the military establishment and the younger generations. Ashish Vazirani, the Acting Undersecretary for Personnel and Readiness at the Pentagon, acknowledges the tough recruitment climate, which has compelled the armed services to lower their target for active personnel in recent times. Recruiting has been hampered by the COVID-19 vaccine mandates, as well as an increasingly woke military atmosphere, where trans soldiers are given special privileges, while Christian soldiers are persecuted Bases host drag shows and leaders with a history of anti-white statements are hired. Rep Matt Gates notes that the under former President Donald Trump's 2020 and 2021 recruitment policies, the military was on point in meeting its staffing and recruitment goals. However, the tables have turned under the Biden regime. Last year, not only did the Air Force, um, but also the Navy and uh, Army miss their recruiting targets. This underperformance, according to the congressman, is symptomatic of deeper issues relating to the misplacement of priorities. Compounding this issue is the declining pool of qualified applicants. Military leaders point to a worrying trend in the shrinking percentage of young Americans who meet the physical, educational and moral standards required for service. Factors such as obesity, lack of high school education and criminal records are cited as key barriers disqualifying potential recruits. According to a report released earlier this year by four retired generals, the majority of Americans aged 17 to 24 are not even eligible for military service. Last month, the United States Army removed the COVID-19 vaccine requirement for new recruits. In addition to lowering almost every single physical qualification for new recruits to pass their initial training, the US Army has dropped its requirement that recruits must have a high school diploma or a GED degree in a desperate effort to attract new blood into the ranks. The military is now using white people again in their US military recruitment ads. The Pentagon has issued a national call of service to America's younger generations urging them to consider military service and declining enlistment. And the Daily Mail reported that military recruiters say Generation Z, those born between 1997 and 
2012 generally have a low trust in institutions and have decreasingly followed traditional life and career paths. And nearly 44 million voters in the Democratic Republic of Congo are set to cast their ballots on Wednesday. They'll be electing a president, members of parliament and local governments. But the Independent National Electoral Commission is dealing with what it calls a logistical and security nightmare. With the stream of contested elections and coups in Africa historically and especially in recent times, all eyes are on the Central African nation with a landmass larger than Western Europe. With more, we join this report now. It's crunch time for Electoral Commission officials. They're working round the clock ahead of a general election on Wednesday. They have to make sure voting materials get to their destinations across the country on time. A tough task for a country roughly the size of Western Europe. The very last item that... Dennis Kadima is a president of the Independent National Electoral Commission, or SENI. His team was only recently appointed and is working with a tight budget and little time to prepare. The commission only has a fraction of the $1.3 billion it says it needs to carry out its work. Countries big, the roads are not good. In addition to that, funding has been coming slowly, and this has resulted in us being unable to, to, to uh, send the goods by sea. We do almost everything by air, and that comes with a huge cost. Some political candidates petitioned the Constitutional Court to postpone the election to allow more time to sort out the logistics, but the courts ruled against that. And the commission says changing the election date is not an option. All eyes are on the Electoral Commission. Voters know it faces many challenges, but they want a free, fair and credible vote. Catherine Soy, Al Jazeera, Kinshasa. A failed Republican congressional candidate from Mississippi has been charged with criminal mischief for destroying a statue of the pagan idol Baphomet in the Iowa State Capitol. Satanists argue that their symbols are protected by the US Constitution. Michael Cassidy of Lauderdale, Mississippi, was arrested on Thursday and charged with fourth-degree criminal mischief after he beheaded and toppled the goat-headed effigy the Iowa Department of Public Safety said on Friday. He faces a maximum sentence of one year in prison and a $2,560 fine if convicted. Clad in a crimson robe and surrounded by prayer candles, the statue depicted a figure with a man's body and a horned goat's head holding a wicker pentacle. Baphomet is commonly associated with the occultism and Satanism, and the display was erected by the Satanic Temple, a registered religious group that took advantage of state rules allowing different religions to display their symbols in the capital over the Christmas period. I saw this blasphemous statue and was outraged, Cassidy told the Sentinel, a conservative news site. The world may tell Christians to submissively accept the legitimization of Satan, but none of the founders would have considered government sanction of satanic altars inside capital buildings as protected by the First Amendment. My conscience is held captive to the word of God, not to bureaucratic decree, and so I acted. He said, Republican lawmakers and Christian activists have called for the statue's removal before it was destroyed, but Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds 
A Republican insisted that she was bound by the US Constitution to leave it in place. Like many Iowans, I found the satanic temple's display in the Capitol absolutely objectionable. Reynolds said in a statement on Tuesday, in a free society, the best response to objectionable speech is more speech. And I encourage all those of faith to join me today in praying over the Capitol and recognising the nativity scene that will be on display, the true reason for the season. And coming up after the break, Vladimir Putin responds to Finland joining NATO. This is Compass on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's James Freeman. We have new revised figures from the Office for National Statistics showing that legal, that's not illegal, that's legal, net migration to the UK has witnessed one of the largest increases on record. Three quarters of a million additional people are now living in the UK in the space of just one year. A huge number that comes just three years after we left the European Union. Now, I didn't vote for Brexit because of immigration. I voted because of democracy, but millions did vote because they think too many people are coming into the country, which makes what the government has allowed to happen an absolute two fingers up to the people and democracy. Another example, if we needed another, of how the government does the exact opposite to what the people want and vote for. The Freeman Report and James Freeman on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Radio works because of its ability to personalize to the listener. What's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it. You know, people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is, how ubiquitous it is. It's in our cars, it's in our homes. There are so many new ways to access it. It's everywhere. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. You're listening to Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Compass. Russia will create a new military district to reinforce its positions near Finland in response to the latter's decision to join NATO, Russian President Vladimir Putin has announced. Putin made the remarks in an interview with Russian journalist Pavel Zarubin that aired on Sunday, stating that Helsinki has not had any real trouble with Moscow for decades already, but now it will. The look uh, they took and dragged Finland into NATO. Did we have any disputes with Finland? All disputes, including those of a territorial nature in the mid-20th century, have long been resolved, Putin stated, noting that Russia does not actually have territorial disputes with any NATO member state. To counter the expansion of the US-led bloc, Russia is set to create the brand new Leningrad military district. As the name would indicate, the new force will be stationed in Leningrad region, in the northwestern part of the country, where the city of St. Petersburg, known as Leningrad during the Soviet Union, is located. There was no trouble, then there now there will be. We will now create the Leningrad military district and concentrate certain military units there. Why do they need this? It's just nonsense. Prior to Finland's decision to join NATO, the two countries enjoy the most cordial relationship. Putin added, the only minor trouble Moscow and Helsinki have had was business disputes revolving around the timber processing industry, the president noted. Finland announced its decision to join NATO months after the conflict between Ukraine and Russia erupted in February of 2022. But in April of this year, the country became a fully-fledged member of the US-led bloc. Moscow has repeatedly 
said that Finland's decision was wrong, given the fact that the neighbouring countries had not had any unresolved bilateral issues. Last week, Helsinki announced plans to design a defence cooperation agreement with the US, allowing Washington to station troops and stockpile weapons and ammunition in the country. The Finnish Foreign Ministry said Helsinki will open 15 zones across the country in which Washington will be provided with unimpeded access and use. And Democrat Governor Katie Hobbs demands half a billion dollars from President Biden to cover escalating costs of illegal immigration costs. How long before the FBI raids her home, like Mayor Eric Adams from New York? Hobbs has accused Biden of creating unmitigated humanitarian crises that puts Arizona's safety and commerce at risk. For far too long, Arizona has continued to bear the burden of federal inaction in managing our southern border. Due to the federal government's failure to secure our border, the state of Arizona has spent over $512 million on border operations, including migrant transportation, drug interdiction, and a law enforcement. This comes days after a new record where over 12,000 migrants in a single day crossed at the southern border. And the embattled son of the president, Hunter Biden, faces tighter scrutiny and even criticism from the mainstream news over his nefarious activities. Although it is a slow drip, he is gathering unwanted media interest as CBS reporter Catherine Herridge emphasised that the federal charges against Hunter Biden are centred on his earnings from China, Ukraine and Romania. Notably, Hunter Biden failed to register as a foreign lobbyist, which breaches the Foreign Agents Registration Act and has indicated, therefore, that she expects more charges to be headed Hunter's way in the future. Now, you mentioned there could be more charges. What makes you think that? It's just my reading of of the document in in the first page. I think the language is uh, that they describe him as a lobbyist. Lobbyists have to register under mm. what's called FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which is a, a government way of saying that if you're working on behalf of foreign interests, you have to tell the U.S. government. In this case, the indictment spends a lot of time talking about Hunter Biden's business deals with the Ukraine energy firm Burisma. It also talks about his work with a Chinese energy firm, CEFC, and it also talks about his work with Romania. And that, to me, seems to leave the door open to potential fear of violations. I also would add that there has been some reporting subpoenas have been issued for his uh, his business partner, the president's uh, brother, James Biden. And that would go to the idea of a FARA, you know, working together, yeah. lobbying on behalf of foreign interests. Now, we say all of that, but their position has been that they he he accepts responsibility for this this period in his life, but mm. they've in no way admitted that they have been lobbying on behalf of those entities. Right. The plot certainly thickens in the Hunter Biden cases. U.S. intelligence agents have been searching for almost three years for a binder containing information on the so-called Russiagate investigation. CNN reported Friday. Former President Donald Trump wanted the folder declassified and made public, but his own officials reportedly obstructed this process before the documents vanished, the network said. The binder was compiled by House Republicans in 2018, and elements have been made available since that have shown that the FBI's counterintelligence investigation into Trump's campaign, which morphed into special counsel Robert Mueller's Russiagate probe, was predicated on the false premise that Russia interfered in the 2016 election. While around a fifth of the binder's contents have been published in unredacted form, a small section contained raw intelligence the US and its NATO allies collected on Russians 
and Russian agents. CNN claimed, citing anonymous sources. The US intelligence agencies never revealed what was actually in this section. And according to CNN, the CIA would only allow the Republicans to view the source files in a safe in the agency's headquarters in Langley, Virginia. Nevertheless, the intelligence community claimed that these files proved that Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered an influence campaign in 2016 aimed at harming Hillary Clinton's chances of election and boosting Trump's campaign. In the days before he left the White House, Trump ordered the binders' contents declassified. According to CNN, this sent a wave of panic through the US intelligence agencies. CIA Director Gina Haspel, FBI Director Christopher Wray and NSA Director General Paul Nakasone all rushed to Capitol Hill to speak to congressional intelligence leaders about their deep concerns of Trump possibly releasing the material, CNN reported. Trump wanted it released to Republican lawmakers and conservative journalists suggest that it would, like the rest of the binder's contents, have bolstered his argument that the Russiagate investigation was a hoax and a witch hunt. One copy of the binder made it to the White House shortly before Trump left office. CNN sources said the president reportedly ordered final redactions to be made and instructed his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, to start sending copies to reporters. A copy was delivered to conservative journalist John Solomon, CNN claimed, only for a Secret Service agent to be dispatched the following day to take it back to the White House. CNN journalists Jeremy Herb, Katie Bo Lillis, Natasha Bertrand, Evan Perez and Zachary Cohen all contributed to that report. All have been known to publish information leaked to the network by spies during Trump's return in his term in office, with Bertrand a key player in boosting false allegations against the president during the Russiagate panic. And it hasn't stopped Democrat supporters on X spruiking that this was Trump selling and hiding state secrets in order to get his way to hide the Russiagate narrative. It seems that they just will not give up on this narrative. And coming up after the news headlines, India's Prime Minister inaugurates the largest office building in the world. You are watching and listening to Compass on TNT Radio. Now, TNT Radio News. News flash. Yeah. Yeah. Now, without further ado. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Israel's war in Gaza is now threatening to derail global trade, with four of the world's largest container shipping companies now redirecting their ships to avoid rocket fire and drones in the Red Sea. Slovakia has expressed its concerns over NATO's involvement in Ukraine, and tensions appear to be increasing on the Korean peninsula, with North Korea firing two ballistic missiles into the Sea of Japan in a direct show of force against the US and its southern neighbour. Don't miss a thing. Be sure to download the TNT radio app from either the Apple App Store or Google Play so you can easily listen live to us anywhere, anytime. Available right now to download. Keeping you up to speed on TNT radio. Welcome back. India's Surat Diamond Boost or Diamond Exchange will create 150,000 new jobs and become a one-stop shop for artisans and businessmen. Prime Minister Narendra Modi said on as he inaugurated the new boost in Gujarat. Surat in Gujarat State, where Modi originally hails from, cuts and polishes 90% of world's roughed diamonds, and the boost will support its ambition to become the world's diamond capital. Constructed over 6.6 .6 million square feet, Boost is touted as the world's largest offer building, surpassing the Pentagon, which has an area of 6.5 million square feet. The Boost has nine 15-storey towers 
towers in more than 4,500 offices, including a customs clearance house and bank, safe vaults, as well as retail, fitness and conference facilities. Once it starts operating, facilities such as international banking, safe vaults and a jewellery mall, further jobs will be created, Modi said during the inauguration event. Apart from the Diamond Hub, he also opened a new terminal at the Surat Airport, which will be able to handle 1,200 domestic and 600 international passengers during peak hours with a provision for capacity increases. The establishment of the Surat Diamond Boost is the result of Modi's guarantee. The Prime Minister noted today Surat is among the top 10 developing cities in the world. Surat was also once known as Sun City, but today the people here with their hard work have made it Diamond City. He said, the inauguration comes as Surat's diamond industry is battling a slowdown in global demand for polished diamonds. India's April to October in uh, April to October in India, they polished uh, the polishing exports fell by 29% to $10 billion. Modi said that while Surat's diamond industry had a leading position in diamond jewelry exports, silver cut diamonds and lab grown diamonds, India's share of global gems exports was just 3.5%. Surat could help increase India's share of gem jewelry exports to double digits. Modi said he added that he would continue to support the sector with a range of incentives and by declaring it a focus area for export promotion. Here is the CEO of the Diamond Boost explaining the magnitude and details of the development. Diamond Boost, which is 6.7 million square foot construction area, which is 9 tower ground plus 15 story building, 2 basement. These are all 9 towers and every floor is connected. So this is a single building. Technically, it becomes a single building. And this is the world's biggest office building. For trading facilities, the other facilities are required. Banks, financial institutes, restaurants, etc. We have taken rough diamond trading and polished diamond trading. All these are Aidan Macy Tsaropsky, a 24-year-old former aide to Democratic Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland, is under investigation and facing a potential criminal charges after a sexually explicit video filmed within the Senate premises went viral on the internet, Daily Mail reported. Aiden shocked the nation when video was posted of him and his partner having gay sex at the US Capitol inside the Senate hearing room. Aiden was buck naked except for a G-string jockstrap as he straddled the senator's desk in the hearing room and smiled for the cameras. He asserted that the explicit behaviour he was alleged to have been involved in within the Hart Senate office building was taken out out of context and is now being weaponized against him due to his sexual orientation and political affiliations. He is now planning to pursue legal action against what he calls defamatory allegations and a politically motivated attack on his character. Macy Tarofsky wrote in his LinkedIn account, this has been a difficult time for me as I've been attacked for who I love to pursue a political agenda. While some of my actions in the past have shown poor judgment, I love my job and would never disrespect my workplace. Any attempts to characterise my actions otherwise are fabricated and I'll be exploring what legal options are available to me in these matters. As for the accusations regarding Congressman Max Miller, I've never seen the Congressman had no opportunity or cause to yell or confront him. On Saturday, Aidan was terminated from his job. Aidan Mace-Tsaropsky is no longer employed by the US Senate, Cardin's office told Politico. We will have no further comment on this matter. 
Capitol Police are actively looking into the incident which occurred in a Senate hearing room, a venerated location where Supreme Court justices undergo confirmation hearings. Sources close to the investigation have indicated that charges under consideration could range from trespassing to obscenity violations. The Daily Mail reported, contacted by DailyMail.com Saturday morning shortly before his firing was confirmed, that uh, Aiden's mother, Magdalena Rivera Mace, implied her son had been left distraught by what had happened, saying, you don't want to know how he's doing. But his fortunes may worsen as an investigation has reportedly been launched with this video, given that it was shared or said to be initially shared in a private group chat for gay men on the Hill. According to attorney Jonathan Turley, there are a number of laws that could potentially have been broken, including whether an unofficial use of the hearing room could be considered trespassing. He added that the footage could land the staffer in legal hot water if it was shot in the public room to make revenue or if it could constitute a lewd, indecent or obscene act. There is also reportedly a question mark over whether the misused or damaged government property. Congressman Mike Collins, a Republican, reacted to the video saying, heck of a week for the left, gay porn made in the Senate, swearing in ceremony on child porn in Virginia, a trend, uh, transsexual tap dancers in the White House and satanic statues in Iowa. What else am I missing? What kind of reaction should we expect from the senator who employed this staffer, given Senator Ben Cardin's stance on January the 6th and the sanctity of the institution? It ought to be worthwhile. Here is Senator Cardin explaining his thoughts on the institution itself. January the 6th, like December the 7th and September the 11th, is a date which will live in infamy. I refer to U.S. Capitol as sacred space because it's so much more than a building where the Senate and the House of Representatives meet and conduct business. It is the embodiment of our ideals, our aspirations, and hope, not just to Americans, but also to all of humanity. So based on that comment, the reply we got besides announcing the staffer was fired, Cardin simply said, we will have no further comment on this personal matter. And humankind is most likely the only species in this part of the galaxy with a consciousness. SpaceX CEO Elon Musk told an audience in Italy on Saturday, comparing our species to a tiny candle in a vast darkness. Speaking at an event organised by Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney, Musk explained his desire to settle humans on Mars by quoting Italian physicist Enrico Fermi, whose Fermi paradox questions why, if extraterrestrial life is so probable, humans have yet to discover evidence of it. One of the explanations, and perhaps the one that appears to be the most accurate, is that consciousness is extremely rare, Musk said. People often ask me, do I know about aliens or something like that? He continued, the crazy thing is that I have no seen no evidence of aliens whatsoever. Most likely, at least in this part of the galaxy, we're the only consciousness that exists. And so you can think of human consciousness really as like a tiny candle in a vast darkness. And we must do everything we can to ensure that the candle does not go out. He concluded, Musk has repeatedly insisted that humanity can only uh, continue if low birth rates in the Western world are reversed and if humans manage to become a spacefaring civilization. Although the second test launch of SpaceX Starship rocket ended in an explosion last month, the billionaire hailed the launch as another step toward making all life multi-planetary. SpaceX began developing the Starship rocket in 2012 with the express aim of using it to transport crews and cargo to the Red Planet. 
If the early stages of its development, SpaceX referred to the rocket as the Mars Colonial Transporter. Musk has often been asked his opinion on aliens, and despite jokingly referring to aliens as his friends, he's always cited the lack of evidence for extraterrestrial life. Unfortunately, I've seen no evidence of aliens yet, he said in a speech at the 74th International Astronautical Congress in October, adding that we are the aliens. And coming up after the break, we shine a light on COVID vaccine studies that question the safety and efficacy entirely as Australia prepares for its own COVID inquiry. This is Compass on TNT Radio. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. There are big changes going on in the overall global weather pattern over the next 15 to 20 days, exactly opposite of what happened last year. The United States overall is going to become a big focal point for winter weather. Europe also, again, once we get past this transition from the 20th through the 30th. So Europe is warmed up, but a lot of cold is coming, it looks to me, like January, February. And the U.S. may have another bout with snowmageddon, especially in the eastern part of the United States. But this is all part of this climate hypothesis I've developed due to underwater volcanic activity. And I've gone over this a couple of times, and it's pretty hard to do it in a minute or two, so I'm not going to review it. But what we said over a month ago was that there was going to be a lot of damaging storms from the El Nino this year, the Gulf of Mexico up the East Coast, and we got another one coming. We already saw Florida blasted back on November 17th, or here comes the next one. But I also said, look out for the hurricane season from hell next hurricane season. That's already on my radar. And if you want to read about it, you go to weatherbell.com. It's not behind the paywall. And you can take a look at what I'm looking at with that. But none of this is part of man-made climate change. That's why I like getting out in front. Because if you look at the readings that I've been doing and actually look at what I've been writing about all this, you find that there is a reason behind it and it has nothing to do with CO2 emissions. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog, meteorologist Joe Bastardi, asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. When the world's endangered animals need help most, when their lives are at greatest risk, when they would otherwise be lost, the International Fund for Animal Welfare is there, taking action to rescue the animals we love, to protect them and their threatened natural habitats. But the danger to animals the world over is growing, and the need for your help has never been more urgent. On land, you'll help stop poachers from threatening and killing elephants and big cats for the illegal wildlife trade. In the oceans, you'll help rescue dolphins, whales, and seals from deadly hazards. And you'll help rescue, rehabilitate, and release vulnerable animals when disasters strike. Here at home and around the world, we can't do this work without you. See how you can help animals and people thrive together at joinifall.org. From world news to global policies and beyond, beyond, this is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back. Jeremy Nell is one of our presenters here on TNT. He also hosted and still hosts Germ Warfare in his own separate podcast, which is also the name of his show here on TNT. He had occasion to get the very first interview regarding a new paper by Dennis Rancourt and colleagues who looked at COVID vaccine-related deaths in 17 countries in the Southern Hemisphere, including Argentina, Australia, Brazil and South Africa. 
Dennis's previous paper looked at the Northern Hemisphere. All-cause mortality by time is the most reliable data for detecting and epidemiologically characterising events causing death and for gauging the population level impact of any surge or collapse in deaths from any cause. Such data can be collected by jurisdiction or geographical region, by age, group, by sex, and so on. And it is not susceptible to reporting bias or to any bias in attributing causes of death in the mortality itself. According to Rancourt et al., all-cause mortality data is pretty much the gold standard. This is because it encapsulates the ultimate outcome, death. Unlike other metrics, they are subject to bias, misdiagnosis, or reporting inconsistencies. Death is definitive and universally recorded. Death is a death after all. Its binary and no nuance is required. It cuts through the noise of varying definitions and diagnostic criteria. All-cause mortality data ignores how the person died. When evaluating, for example, the effectiveness of vaccines, all-cause mortality data provides a clear endpoint and tells us whether the vaccines are saving lives. COVID vaccines are claimed to not have done so. In fact, they ended them and are still ending lives. Dennis's new 180-page study predictably finds no evidence that the jab has reduced overall deaths in the Southern Hemisphere. The opposite seems to be true. The country saw spikes in overall deaths when vaccines were rolled out. The paper specifically points out that nine of the 17 countries had no noticeable increase in overall deaths for about a year after the pandemic was declared until the shot was introduced. It also noted that there were massive peaks in deaths in the summer of 2022, which coincided with the rollout of boosters. The paper goes into detail about the mortality and vaccination data for Chile and Peru, arguing that the peaks in overall deaths during specific periods could not be due to anything other than the jab. The study calculates the vaccine dose fatality rate, which is the ratio of deaths caused by the injection to the number of doses given. VDFR varies from 0.02% in New Zealand to 0.2% in Uruguay and increases with age. For the 17 countries studied, the overall VDFR is estimated to be around 0.126%, implying around 17 million vaccinated-related deaths worldwide. Dennis calls for an immediate re-evaluation of public health policy policies, especially those prioritising the elderly for vaccination. That conversation took place in late no, September with Jeremy, but last month Rancourt got to share the same information before an international crisis summit in the Romanian parliament. Let's play some of Dennis Rancourt and his team's comments now. We calculate the toxicity of the vaccine for all ages, and the number allows us, given the number of doses that have been given worldwide, to conclude that 17 million people would have been killed by this vaccine. You can actually see when there's a rollout of a booster, for example, which happens very quickly in time for a given age group, you can actually see immediately following it the, a, a maximum in the all-cause mortality. So an excess mortality actual peak that's temporally associated with that rollout. And we see that repeatedly for each rollout. Consistently across all countries. All the countries that have sufficient data where you're able to look at it and you have both the vaccine data and the mortality data, this is what we see. When you look at uh, all-cause mortality, you see that deaths are increasing in the, in the winter and decreasing in the summer. And it's the opposite in the southern hemisphere. Their summer is our winter, so in the summer you should have low death. But during the COVID vaccine campaign, suddenly you see spikes in mortality right after uh, vaccine uh, campaigns and it's very clear because it's in the summer where you should see a low death period. 
especially in the boosters, like for the southern hemispheres, like the yeah. peak, you know, across the boosters will roll out basically everywhere at the same time around the world. And in the southern hemisphere, it's a trough, as Jeremy just explained. So we should have a trough, but then you have an actual winter peak, actual booster peak, and another winter peak. Yes. So that's everywhere in all the 17 countries we yes. worked out, uh, where data is good in the southern hemisphere, we saw that peak. And something you never saw before. Exactly. A peer-reviewed Japanese study published in the Curious Journal on December the 7th looked at the association between Pfizer COVID vaccination and deaths within 10 days. The risk period was defined as within 10 days of vaccination, with vaccination day being day one, and the control period defined as 11 to 180 days after jab. The analysis was divided into two groups, Group 1, representing individuals aged 65 and above, and Group 2, which included people 64 and below. The researchers identified 1,311 deaths in Group 1, which included 662 males and 649 females. In Group 2, the team identified 247 deaths, 155 male, 92 female. The percentage of reported cases that experienced death within 10 days after jab was 71% in Group 1 and 70% in Group 2, said the study results. Commenting on the study, cardiologist Dr Peter McCullough said that the data of COVID-19 vaccination and death in Japan is very similar to vaccine deaths in US domestic cases in VAERS, according to a December 9 X post. Strongly supports causality for nearly the 1,150 immediate deaths observed, he said. VAERS has reported 18 1,188 deaths from COVID-19 vaccination through September 29, 2023, with 1,150 deaths occurring on the same day as the vaccination. In addition, 2,040 miscarriages, 9,053 heart attacks, 17,500 permanent disabilities, 5,000 myocarditis, pericarditis cases, and 36,184 severe allergic reactions were also reported. The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons also shared the Japanese study on X. The study author clarified that they have received no financial support from any organisation for their submitted work. Multiple other studies have also linked COVID-19 vaccinations with higher mortality rates. September 17 report by Correlation Research in the Public Interest found that of the 17 nations analysed, all-cause mortality increased when COVID-19 vaccines were distributed. Nine out of these 17 nations had no detectable excess deaths following the March 2020 declaration of the pandemic. Excess deaths only began with after the vaccination began. Meanwhile, Japan has approved the world's first self-amplifying mRNA COVID-19 vaccine, although the manufacturer has not published safety or efficacy data for the shot. The latest iteration of the mRNA vaccine is even more potent than the present version as it generates more spike proteins in the human body. And in Australia, contributors were rushing late last week to make their submissions to the COVID inquiry set to commence next year. Despite promises of a COVID Royal Commission when in opposition, after Australia was heavily locked down and mandated during the period 2020 to 21, when he became Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese would walk back promises of a full and frank inquiry into the pandemic response, turning it into a three-panel inquiry, which will make a written submission, take submissions and write a written report. Concerns surrounding the three carefully selected panellists are well-founded. Three panellists include Miss Robin Crocker, AO, who has previously held roles as the Director General of the New South Wales Department of Health, Secretary of the Commonwealth Department of the Environment, Water, Heritage and the Arts, Dr Angela Jackson, 
a health economist with extensive experience in economics and government, including through her current role as lead economist for impact economics and policy. And Professor Catherine Bennett, Deakin University's current chair in epidemiology and the University of Melbourne's former associate professor in epidemiology and director of population health practice. On my show on Saturday, Weekends with Jason Olborn, Sydney solicitor Tony Nicolick, who had submitted his COVID inquiry form just before the deadline, welcomes the inquiry, but was sceptical about its impartiality, revealing that in direct correspondence from Professor Bennett, she referred to his expert witnesses in earlier court cases, anti-vaxxers. Does this indicate a setup or a whitewash before it begins? Here is Tony Nicolick explaining. If we're genuinely going to go down that track of an inquiry, it needs to be a full, thorough, full and frank inquiry without fear or favour. I have serious concerns about how it may be conducted, and I'll say that in just a moment. Um, and one of those concerns, I think you touched on some of the panel members there. Um, I did have um, an inquiry with Catherine Bennett, who is the second. She's an epidemiologist, highly respected um, very, very high class in her field, and I think she's eminently qualified in what she does. But early on in the pandemic, and no one would know this, but I have an email exchange with her in a particular case where I actually indicate to Catherine Bennett that just because I have experts on cases, we shouldn't be calling them anti-vaxxers. Mm. Now, that's an exclusive for you right there. Obviously, I've put it in my submission. I'm not hiding anything. I've got the email. Um, and my concern is if we are going to have a full, frank, independent inquiry, then my concern is if we have an independent member indicating that experts that may be used in cases, and the case I refer to here is the Kassam case, and any experts speaking against the vaccine or the ma ma mandated vaccine, well, I think what we needed to do is say, well, should we referring to them as anti-vaxxers? Well, no. Um, I actually think in that in that sense, we have a real fear here that it's actually going to go down a pathway where we're not really going to get objectivity. And it's almost as though it's a fait accompli. So how important will impartiality be in this attempt at a COVID examination on pandemic preparedness? Just the name suggests that getting ready is more important than getting it right. Government is very good at obfuscation, the ability to point us in a different direction where scrutiny needs to be applied. Even before COVID, vaccine inquiry was frowned upon and often ignored. But when Donald Trump became president, he is planning on setting up an inquiry on the advice of RFK Jr. But Trump then spoke to the world's appointed private vaccine czar, Bill Gates, who had this to say. Then the second time I saw him was uh, the March after that, uh, so March 2017 in the White House. In both of those two meetings, he asked me if vaccines weren't a bad thing because he was considering a commission to look into uh, ill effects of vaccines. And, and somebody, his name is Robert Kennedy Jr., was advising him that vaccines were causing bad things. And I said, no, that's a dead end. That would be a bad thing. Don't do that. 
Ivor Cummins, a regular guest on TNT Radio as an independent activist, journalist and commentator, released a very timely reminder of exactly how the media industrial complex saturated the airways and despite being demonstrably in error, they went as hard as they possibly could to push the one-size-fits-all solution, including abandoning their push for fairness and equality and inclusiveness in society for just about everything else. People are not behaving honorably. The unvaccinated are basically saying, well, it's open season for me. I can do whatever I want as well. The, the unvaccinated are basically beating their breasts and running around the country saying, ha ha, we don't care, we're living free and so forth. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. The unvaccinated, a group that includes children and people acting like children. <laughs> and the rest of us are starting to get off. The vaccinated feel the unvaccinated are making me upset or angry. This is not about freedom or personal choice. Well, my freedom is being kind of disturbed here. No, screw your freedom. The other day, Howard Stern weighed in with a much different approach. Take a look. <laughs> when are we going to stop putting up with the idiots in this country and just say, you now, it's mandatory to get vaccinated? Their freedom. But you're treading on our freedom and you're making other people sick and really you're killing other people. The anti-vaxxers, they seem to have a thing for death and home remedies. The anti-maskers turned anti-vaxxers are not just putting their own lives at risk. If that was the issue, we could just say that we can watch them compete to win places show in the Darwin Awards. We have to start doing things for the greater good of society and not for idiots who think that they can do their own research. And don't get me started on the lunatics who won't take any of the COVID vaccines. Life is too short to be an ass. Life is way too short to be ignorant of the promise of something that is helping people worldwide. Maybe you're doing it because um, you're, you're disconnected or disorganized. Maybe you have some sympathetic psychological reasons. But maybe you're just being antisocial. Oh, you can't shame them. You can't call them stupid. You can't call them silly. Yes, they are. Those who are not vaccinated will end up paying the price. The unvaccinated should be taxed. Uh, they should pay more for health care. We need to start looking at the choice to remain unvaccinated the same as we look at driving while intoxicated. We're going to see, and I've said, almost mm -hmm. two types of America. Dr. Fauci said that if hospitals get any more overcrowded, they're going to have to make some very tough choices about who gets an ICU bed. And that choice doesn't seem so tough to me. Vaccinated person having a heart attack? Yes, come right on in. We'll take care of you. Unvaccinated guy who gobbled horse goo. Rest in peace, Wheezy. Pointing back to the unvaccinated who are really creating a problem in this country, every death that we are seeing from COVID could have been prevented. Literally, the only people dying are the unvaccinated. And for those of you spreading misinformation, shame on you. Meanwhile, RFK Jr., who has been working as a lawyer and litigated over 500 cases, says trusting the science is not a thing. Here he explains this concept using an example where he eventually won a $2.2 billion judgment on behalf of his clients. So today's last word goes to independent U.S. presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. This phrase, trust the experts, is not a thing. It's a, it certainly is not a feature of democracy. It's not a feature of science. In science, you don't trust the experts, never. You know, I've sued five, I've had what, over 500 cases. And in each one of them, there was scientific controversy and there was experts on both sides. When I sued Monsanto, Monsanto came in with experts from Stanford, Harvard, and Yale. 
my wife, who's an actor, came to court that day, on the last day of their testimony. She watched these people, and then afterwards, and they were so convincing. She walked out, and she said, why are you even troubling these, this poor company to me? And I would like, wait till tomorrow. The next day, we had our experts from Harvard, Stanford, and Yale, and the jury gave us $2.2 billion. They had heard both of them, and they had to decide which expert is lying. And experts have their own prejudices, they have their own biases, and their own ambitions, et cetera. And so it's not, a, you know, trusting the experts is not a feature of science. It's not a feature of democracy. It's a feature of religion and totalitarianism. And, but it's not something we do. And in breaking news, the far north Queensland city of Cairns has run out of processed water after devastating flooding caused havoc in its water infrastructure system. The mayor of Cairns, Terry James, confirmed the city's treated water supplied in its reservoirs has been depleted. The statement from the Shire Council published early this morning states, this is very limited uh, supply which may run out this morning if water cannot be restored to the treatment plant. Some suburbs in Cairns may have already been without water due to damaged infrastructure. He said the blockages prevented water from being treated and treated water supplies in reservoirs have now been depleted. Well, that concludes today's show. Up next is Chris Smith. You have been listening and watching to Compass with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio.